My name is Dr. Joshua Knapp. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist and 21st century Christ follower. Early in life, I experienced overwhelming psychological suffering, which led me down a path of wandering away from the Christian faith in my adolescent years, reminiscent of the lost son in Luke's gospel, returning to my Christian heritage in my early 20s, my own psychotherapy in my mid-20s, and ultimately a life committed to understanding and pursuing psychological and spiritual health as I now head into the middle years of my life. Please join me as we devote each week to better understanding secular and Christian perspectives on mental health and the intersection between psychology and Christianity. Then engage in a 10-minute practice to conclude each episode drawing upon Christian meditation, prayer, and contemplation. Above all else, my aim in this podcast is to journey with fellow Christ followers, as well as those who are curious about the rich heritage of Christian psychological and spiritual insights into the human condition. Doing so with humility and curiosity as we strive to cultivate Christ-likeness in all we do. Hi, I'm Dr. Joshua Nabb, and welcome to the 33rd episode of The Christian Psychologist. In this episode, I'd like to talk about a topic that may be one of the most important and least understood psychological and spiritual concepts in the Christian life, grace. Grace, in fact, has now been researched in the secular psychology literature of late, and, of course, it has been written on and discussed in Christianity for two millennia. From my perspective, it has the potential to make a huge impact when properly understood and practiced on the mental and spiritual health of 21st century Christ followers. So to begin today's trek, I think a few pressing questions are important to consider for 21st century Christ followers. What is grace? Is is it a human state, a trait, or behavior, or solely a gift from God? Is there a difference between divine and human grace? Should receiving one lead to extending the other? As is the case with God-given grace and God-human and then human-human interactions within the context of Christianity. What are its ingredients? How do we as humans have such a difficult time receiving grace? And why? How does grace relate to mental health? How about spiritual health? How might humans, including Christians, go about giving and receiving grace in our relationship with others? How might the grace literature in secular psychology help 21st century Christ followers to cultivate and maintain mental and spiritual health in a fallen, broken world filled with human imperfection? What does the Bible say about grace? And how might, from a Christian perspective, grace help Christians with psychological and spiritual suffering? And finally, what might classic Christian spiritual writings say about the important topic of grace? So before going on to a personal story, the secular psychology literature and a biblical view of grace, I'd like to offer a few introductory quotes. Aristotle famously taught, quote, The ideal man bears the accidents of life with dignity and grace, making the best of circumstances, end quote. The Christian Francis de Sales noted, quote, God offers his grace in abundance 
to all of us in a great variety of ways. It is our receiving it that makes the difference. End quote. Another Francis, Francis of Assisi, is quoted as saying, Above all, the grace and the gifts that Christ gives to his beloved is that of overcoming self. End quote. The great theologian Martin Luther offered, quote, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stand his life on it a thousand times. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying, quote, Grow in the root of all grace, which is faith. Believe God's promises more firmly than ever. Allow your faith to increase in its fullness, firmness, and simplicity. According to the contemporary Christian writer James Bryan Smith, quote, The larger narrative from the biblical story is a massive tapestry of grace and generosity. Yahweh bends down and makes clothes for the newly fallen Adam and Eve. God chooses a whining and adulterous band of nomads who frequently go after other gods, and yet Yahweh never gives up on them. The psalmist proclaims the deepest truth about Yahweh. His steadfast love endures forever. The dominant narrative of the Bible is a story of unearned grace of a God whose love is not thwarted by human sinfulness, and of a Christ who dies for sinners. End quote. With these quotes, both secular and religious, we can see the importance of grace in daily life. For Christians, I believe the grace that God offers us, via both common grace extended to all of creation, and special grace reserved for humanity and those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, has far-reaching mental health implications and should be extended to others because of God's model for us, especially the free gift of his Son to reconcile a fallen, rebellious, wayward humankind with him. In fact, the Bible is a story of God's graciously preserving, pursuing, and reconciling his creation with humans regularly wandering away and turning from him. Yet, again and again, we read in the pages of the Bible that God still pursues us, given he loves his creation and has a plan for every one of us. So before turning to the secular psychology literature's understanding of grace, including its empirical investigations of the topic, I'd like to share a personal story. Over the years, I've worked with countless clients in psychotherapy who often have struggles and regrets from their past that they simply wish would go away. Yet time and time again, their histories impact their present day. So much so that they come to therapy to talk to a trusted, safe other to explore the overwhelming impact that past mistakes have had on the here and now whether related to inner psychological functioning or outer domains of life across work life, family life, community life, church life, and so forth. I can remember working with one particular client, at the time a middle-aged male, who made a huge mistake in his younger years, tragically, accidentally taking the life of another human being when he was out driving his car. 
For this individual, he was looking down at the car radio, unaware that someone was in his path as he was driving along the road. Although I won't go into greater detail, I'll just say that the loss of life occurred on that day. And in turn, my client carried the guilt with him for more than two decades. This guilt weighed him down with intrusive memories of the event and the belief that it should have been him, not the person who actually died, who lost their life. Simply put, my client was lost in his own experience of depression, guilt, shame, and even self-hatred, struggling to have compassion for himself some quarter century later. Because of this, his family life suffered, his work life suffered, he struggled to keep a job, and many other areas of functioning were impaired. He struggled to maintain an intimate relationship and really see himself as worthy of love and respect. In our work together, I gradually helped him to explore the pain that so naturally emanated from this event. In fact, I offered him grace, although I did not name it as such in our relationship and conversations, each and every session. Slowly, over time, gradually, he was able to extend grace to himself. I believe first because I extended grace to him. In fact, the grace I extended him as a Christian psychologist, from my perspective, first came from God's grace for me. I was simply a vehicle through which to display the fruit of the Spirit, including love, kindness, goodness, and gentleness. Although a vehicle made of metal, rubber, vinyl, plastic, and so forth, some quarter of a century prior was used in a way that led to tragedy. In our work together, I was a different sort of vehicle, a vehicle through which God's grace could be extended to him. Again, and again in an unconditional, accepting manner. Through the simple act of extending God's grace through me to him, he was able to accept the reality of the prior event, that he's an imperfect person who made a mistake, and begin to extend compassion, kindness, mercy, and love to himself, doing so because of the corrective experience he had in therapy. Simply put, as humans, we absolutely need grace. An undeserved, unconditional merit, favor, and acceptance of undeserving others. Since we will inevitably make mistakes in a fallen, broken world. Without it, and this is often the case in our contemporary society with no mercy and no grace and cancel culture, I believe there can be no mercy, no kindness, no compassion, and ultimately no loving intimacy and union. Since, given the time and resources, we will inevitably come up short. Given enough time, giving us enough resources, we will squander our inheritance like the lost son. All of us will. There's no exception to the rule. And yet when we do, grace can be the remedy for moving forward. With Christians learning about grace via God's special revelation, the Bible, 
and the grand narrative of Scripture within it, which is a story of grace. God generously created humans in his own image to be in relationship with him and others, yet we tragically turned away from God's plan. In our free will, we turned away. Including really a rejection that God is at the center and we needed to depend on him as finite human beings that he created. But the story does not end there. Given God offered a loving plan to reconcile us to him by graciously giving his son as the great reconciler, as the great high priest. Although we, he, we didn't, I'm sorry, although we did not in any way earn this ability to reconcile, God nevertheless offered Jesus. And because of this undeserved gift, we will one day be face to face with God in heaven where there will be no more imperfections, no more tears, no more blemishes. To accept God's free gift of grace means we have to come to grips with the reality that we did not earn his merit, favor, goodness, and love in any way. And we cannot. Instead, he freely offered it, doing so because of his love for us as a God of love. As my own personal psychotherapist once said when I was in my own personal psychotherapy. Upon thanking him at the conclusion of our long-term clinical work together, he said, quote, therapy's 100% grace. Referring to the change process that had occurred and I was grateful to him for. In other words, he, as my therapist, was simply paying forward the grace offered to him from God and me by a perfect, loving, benevolent God who cares intimately for his creation. So now, turning to the secular psychology literature, although this literature has been fascinated by and occupied with many virtues that have historically been housed within both philosophy and theology, such as gratitude, grace has been really overlooked oftentimes, despite the fact that it is likely one of the most important theological, psychological, and spiritual concepts within Christianity. In fact, grace and and mercy really are key for thriving Christian communities from my perspective. To extend really merit when it's not due and to withhold punishment or mercy when it is due. So in the 21st century, grace has been gradually researched. So we're improving in this area in the secular psychology literature as a construct or concept for measurement and an intervention in the context of both human and divine grace. So in terms of definitions, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines grace as a noun, as both a state and a trait. It is, quote, unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. It's also defined by Merriam-Webster as, quote, virtue coming from God or a state of sanctification enjoyed through divine assistance or a disposition to or an act or instance of kindness, courtesy, or clemency. As a verb, this same dictionary, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, defines it as, quote, to confer dignity or honor on. 
In the psychology literature, it's been defined as a virtue, studied alongside other virtues in what is now known as the positive psychology movement, which aims to study human flourishing and what goes well in life, psychologically speaking, not just what goes wrong, which has often been the case in clinical psychology and referred to as psychopathology. In one review article on grace, it was defined as, quote, the gift of acceptance given unconditionally and voluntarily to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. It can be used, according to psychologists, in a range of contexts, such as asking for grace from another human, for example, to be lenient when grading or assessing another's work, a company offering a grace period wherein penalties won't be assigned for various reasons. It might be someone dancing or moving gracefully within the context of human spirituality also and used alongside other virtues such as gratitude, forgiveness, and so forth. In terms of ingredients, one study that attempted to combine several, several scales of grace revealed that measuring grace involves five dimensions including experiencing God's grace, such as an item being reflected as, quote, because of God, I feel I have a greater sense of power and energy in my life. Also, the idea that grace is costly, meaning we need to live our lives in appreciation of the grace God extends us, not somehow trying to take advantage of it, such as maintaining an attitude of, quote, knowing God will forgive lets me do anything I want. Also, another dimension is extending grace to ourselves with an item on a measure reflecting this as, quote, I accept my shortcomings. We can also receive grace from others with an item capturing this as, quote, as a child, I was confident that at least one of my parents loved me no matter what. And extending grace to others such as, quote, when offended or harmed by others, I generally find it easy to forgive them. So we have a variety of different areas of grace or domains of grace or ingredients of grace. According to other psychologists, grace has a few main ingredients. There's a relational element. So in other words, it's used in the context of a relationship with either fellow human beings or God. There is a giver and receiver also. The giver is not obligated to extend some sort of gift or benefit, yet does, often in violation of any kind of social obligation. The receiver, on the other hand, is not owed the gift or benefit. In other words, they are undeserving. See, we have a giver who gives without any obligation some sort of benefit or favor or gift, and a receiver who's not owed this gift and yet receives it even though they are undeserving. So ultimately, the giver provides a benefit or gift, often overlooking some sort of social obligation to someone who is undeserving of the gift, given there has been some sort of violation. More succinctly put, grace involves extending undeserved merit or favor to someone who is undeserving of it with no obligation to do so. For some psychologists, the gift or benefit offered is, quote, 
unconditional acceptance, which is key when defining grace in the secular psychology literature. To add another layer, human grace in the secular psychology literature may be defined as undeserving, unconditional acceptance extended from one person who is not obligated to give it to another who is not deserving of receiving it. This human grace within a relational exchange may involve extending loving goodness, forgiveness, mercy, which can be the withholding of punishment and kindness. Of course, divine grace may involve a higher power or God extending more a more permanent gift, such as eternal life or salvation, not mere human acceptance, merit, and so forth, which are inherently limiting when given by another human being. So overall, to combine these findings, grace can be human or divine and given or received, involving a giver who is not obligated to give and a receiver who is not obligated to receive or not is not deserving of the receive. In this exchange, there's an element of unconditional acceptance of the undeserving recipient, which may involve extending loving goodness, mercy, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and so forth. For Christianity's divine grace, of course, God ultimately extends life and salvation to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ who is the great high priest and son of God, who reconciles Christians to God. In terms of the relationship between grace and mental health, in a review of 60 studies with almost 10,000 participants, focusing on both divine and human grace, a few interesting patterns emerged. Grace was negatively correlated with depression, guilt, shame, hopelessness, perfectionism, and distress in general, and positively correlated with spiritual well-being and the acceptance of perceived negative emotions. In terms of the relationship between interpersonal relations and human grace, in the same review of 60 studies, grace was positively related to empathy. Interestingly, research has revealed that religious adults can actually cultivate a greater awareness of divine grace, which can impact mental and spiritual health. So we can actually utilize interventions to improve grace, or at least the perception of grace. In a study that involved asking participants to journal about and meditate on God's grace, as well as read about Jesus' crucifixion, participants reported a positive change pre to post intervention in terms of positive self-attributes or a view of the self, positive views or attitudes about God, and the ability to forgive. In another study, church congregants were asked to listen to a sermon series on grace, participate in small group activities on grace, and engage in personal grace practices, such as practicing Lexio Divina or divine reading, drawn from James Bryan Smith's best-selling book, The Good and Beautiful God. And results in this research revealed that improvements in grace and self-forgiveness were evident. So to summarize here, 
Grace can be human or divine, given or received. It has been described as a virtue or moral behavior and involves a giver extending unconditional acceptance to an undeserving recipient. With this acceptance commonly involving offering goodness, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, compassion, and so forth. And research has revealed positive mental health-related correlates of grace. And those who participate in grace interventions can increase their awareness of it, which has mental and spiritual health-related implications. So turning now to Christianity, within the pages of the Bible, spanning Genesis to Revelation, we read of God's grace. Whether through creating us to love us, pursuing us when we run away, offering his son to reconcile us, or eventually leading us home to him where he has prepared a place for us. Although we may sometimes forget that God is a God of love, there is no greater story in the Bible of God's grace as the incarnation, birth, life, death, and resurrection, with Jesus himself teaching about, among other stories, the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. With the lost sheep and coin, God pursues us, whereas the lost son reflects the grace that God extends to us, even though we want to squander our inheritance. Yet God patiently waits for our return, even celebrating our return upon losing everything with outstretched arms. So even though we squander our inheritance, even though we want to leave His presence as soon as possible, he patiently waits for our return and has outstretched arms and offers his grace moment upon moment. In fact, within Christianity, we find two overarching types of grace, common and special or divine grace offered by God. With common grace, God offers his blessings and sustains all of life, including both humans, other creatures, and his creation in general. This common grace offered by God may include things like sunshine and rain to nourish God's creation and provide for humans, food, clothing, and housing for humans, and humans being loving and kind towards one another which is instilled by God. We can even give grace to others because of a gift from God, giving us the capacity to do so. As a quick example in Scripture, with common grace, God provides rain for those who are just and unjust, as revealed in Matthew 5.45. Quote, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greed only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? End quote. With special or divine grace, God offers his loving kindness, which is unconditional, more narrowly to all of humankind, And this special grace can include his saving grace via God forgiving humanity's sins through Jesus Christ as vividly reflected in Ephesians 2. 
Quote, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. End quote. In addition to saving grace, special grace involves God's sanctifying grace, which means through the indwelling and work of the Holy Spirit, God helps us to become more like his Son, Jesus Christ, which includes displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In fact, because of God's common grace extended to all humankind through God's providential care or good governance, and special grace, which includes saving and sanctifying grace and is extended to Christians who put their faith in Jesus Christ, Christians should extend this grace to others. Worded a bit differently, because God has given us the undeserved gift of grace, a freely offered merit and favor based on his love and mercy, which we did not earn in any way, we should, in turn, extend this love, mercy, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, generosity, and so forth to others. Simply put, God models undeserved, unconditional grace for us, and we can pay this grace forward, which has mental health implications within a grace-filled, Holy Spirit-empowered life. In terms of grace in the Bible, According to the Holman Bible Dictionary, grace is succinctly defined as undeserved acceptance and love received from another. The Upper Room Dictionary of Christian Spiritual Formation defines grace in more detail as, quote, the essential nature of God, agape, and the fundamental intention of God, redemption, freely given and apart from any merit on the receiver's part. Grace is merciful love, aimed at nothing other than incorporating the recipient into the body of Christ. For that reason, the Greek word for grace, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, has to do with rejoicing and has been variously used to describe beauty, charm, goodwill, favor, and the like. Grace is the divine atmosphere in which we live, move, and have our being. This same dictionary entry continues, quote, But grace is not merely a great truth about God. It is a transforming effect of the life of God in the human soul. To live in grace is to be changed, quote, from one degree of glory to another, 
quoting 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we respond to God's ongoing offers of grace, we find ourselves becoming more like Christ in character and conduct. Such is the efficacious nature of grace, end quote. Finally, this dictionary differentiates grace in the context of justification upon conversion, wherein the new believer is reconciled to God and can begin to live a Christian life in Christ, and grace in the context of sanctification or becoming more like Christ, and grace in the context of glorification or God's presence and grace when we die, wherein we will be face to face with God. So there are different types of grace in the context of the Christian tradition. Common grace, special grace, and then we have a grace that is justifying, a grace that is sanctifying, and a grace that is glorifying. God offers his saving grace ultimately for those who put our faith in him. And as we do so, we are reconciled to God. We're no longer enemies with God. And we can begin to become more like Christ as we walk with him home to our final destination, being face-to-face with God in heaven. As I've said before in this podcast, I think Christian mental health is really learning how to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to confidently walk with the Son home to the outstretched arms of the Father. So really, Christian mental health is learning how to walk home with God to be with God face-to-face forever. And this is 100% grace. Our job is to respond to it. It's freely given. We cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet, moment upon moment, God gives us his common grace, really sustaining creation and holding it in his hand, and special grace. And as Christians, we are invited to be in relationship with him so that we can one day be face-to-face with him. And this is undeserved and yet freely given. In terms of classic Christian spiritual writings, within James Bryan Smith's best-selling book, The Good and Beautiful God, he describes several practices for cultivating and maintaining a greater awareness and appreciation for God, who is a God of love, and a God of grace. Among these practices mentioned in the book, Lexio Divina, or divine reading, involves four major steps and is anchored to, comes from the monastic Christian tradition from centuries ago. We read scripture, we meditate on scripture, we pray to God, and we contemplate God. And for Christians, according to Smith, we need to remember that God always loves us, offering his grace all of the time, not just when we're good. In other words, God loves sinners. God's love is not conditional conditional on how we act, and he will not take his love away no matter what we do, and this is grace. Smith, in, in this book, uses the powerful image, which is a false image of God somehow sitting in a chair, swiveling away from us when we're bad and sin, and toward us when we're supposedly good and earn his favor and attention, like a parent, like a manipulative parent, like a parent is who offers only conditional love. This image, which unfortunately many of us may hold, 
onto in our own idiosyncratic ways is not an image portrayed in Scripture. Instead, God pursues sinners even when we are still sinners and died for us even when we were still in our sinful state. As Scripture revealed, quote, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love in the midst of our sinful state and sinful behaviors. So really, according to Smith, our perceived distance from God is because we we really don't accept his grace. We reject his grace, not because we somehow fail to earn his favor in some sort of works-based legalistic manner. Some might even say we can't resist his grace. It's irresistible. So we might say here that we don't practice an awareness of God's grace, which has psychological implications and spiritual implications. Even though God's grace may be irresistible, we unfortunately forget to live a life in response to it. Turning to another classic Christian spiritual writing, New Seeds of Contemplation, written by the 20th century Trappist monk and Christian writer Thomas Merton. In it, he powerfully declared, quote, We read the Gospels not merely to get a picture or an idea of Christ, but to enter in and pass through the words of Revelation to establish by faith a vital contact with the Christ who dwells in our souls as God. The problem of forming Christ in us is not to be solved merely by our own efforts. It is not a matter of studying the Gospels and then working to put our ideas into practice, although we should try to do that too, but always under the guidance of grace, in complete subjection to the Holy Spirit. For if we depend on our own ideas, our own judgment, and our own efforts to reproduce the life of Christ, we will only act out some kind of pious charade, which will ultimately scare everybody we meet because it will be so stiff and artificial and so dead. It is the Spirit of God that must teach us who Christ is and form Christ in us and transform us into being Christ-like. After all, transformation into Christ is not just an individual affair. There is only one Christ, not many. He is not divided. And for me to become Christ... Christ-like is to enter into the life of the whole Christ, the mystical body made up of the head and the members, Christ and all who are incorporated in him by his Spirit. Christ forms himself by grace and faith in the souls of all who love him, and at the same time he draws them all together in himself to make them one in him. And the Holy Spirit, who is the life of this body, this one body, dwells in the whole body and in every one of the members, so that the whole Christ is Christ and each individual is Christ. We might say Christ-like. So the process of sanctification is a process of grace. To be formed into the image of Christ involves ultimately God's grace, sanctifying us helping us to become more like him, to be holy, to love like Jesus, and to forgive like Jesus, and to serve like Jesus, and to reconcile like Jesus, to be a peacemaker like Jesus, to have a heart for the lost like Jesus, 
to extend grace like Jesus. All of this is possible because of God's sanctifying grace. It's no effort of our own, and so really it's about being a dwelling place through which God can work in and through us to display his fruit and to draw people to him. Building on this understanding and drawing upon the insights on the use of Lexio Divina to cultivate an awareness of grace, I'd like us to enter into a time of short practice now. Remember, we're not being legalistic or trying to earn God's grace in this moment. Instead, we're merely practicing an awareness of the grace that's already there. It's a passive practice in that we're not doing anything to earn or establish. It's already there. We're just slowing down to notice it, to notice God's grace within, and to let go actually, of our efforts to try to somehow increase God's favor, to earn God's favor, like a parent who only gives us attention when they somehow think we deserve it. So, in other words, we will be practicing God's presence. God's already here, right here, right now. A God of love is with us. A personal God of love is with us. In order to rely on God's sanctifying grace within, in order to become more like Christ via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and in turn, extending God's grace or undeserved, unconditional loving acceptance to ourselves and others in daily life. We're practicing God's presence in order to really then extend this grace to ourselves and others. Simply put, Because God gives us justifying and sanctifying grace, we can extend this grace to ourselves, letting go of self-condemnation, self-criticism, self-judgment, and in turn extend it to others. Said another way, we're learning to rely on God's grace, not our own imperfect efforts, for mental and spiritual health, unconditionally accepting God's loving favor, which in turn we apply to ourselves than others. Rather than constantly striving to earn the favor of God and others, we're learning to let go and be a dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit and, as a result, the fruit of the Spirit to operate within, including love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can we cultivate a deeper peace within because there's nothing we need to do to earn God's favor? Can we be more patient with ourselves? Can we be more kind to ourselves? Can we be more gentle with ourselves, towards ourselves, not shaming ourselves and condemning ourselves as if we are God, as if we are the judge? God extends grace to us. God extends mercy to us, which means we can do so toward ourselves, then in turn toward others. We don't not, do not need to condemn. We do not need to guilt ourselves into behaving differently. Instead, we operate out of the freedom in Christ and then naturally want to extend this grace and love and mercy and forgiveness towards others and ourselves. We are, as Paul proclaimed, free in Christ, not slaves, and live by the Holy Spirit. 
So let's enter into the practice of Lexio Divina, or divine reading, by reading, meditating, praying, and contemplating, reminiscent of biting, chewing, tasting, and savoring a meal. With this image used within historic monastic Christianity to vividly capture the salience of divine reading. So to begin, find a quiet location, free from distractions. Sitting up straight in a supportive chair with your eyes closed and hands resting in your lap comfortably. First, we'll be slowly reading a section of 2 Corinthians 12, wherein Paul had a vision from God. Quote, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. According to Paul, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, quote, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, according to Paul, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Second, we will be meditating on a shorter passage here. My grace is sufficient for you. Imagining that God is saying this to each and every one of us personally right here and now, like God did with Paul in the New Testament of the Bible. My grace is sufficient for you. Deeply pondering what this means, meditating on, ruminating on in the best possible way, chewing on as we take a bite out of Scripture by reading the larger passage and then begin to chew a smaller bite. My grace is sufficient for you. Really try to imagine that you're letting go of any effort of your own to earn God's favor, to earn others' favor, their reputation, status, love, or honor. Let go of the exhaustion, too, that comes from these arduous and often ineffective, especially in the long-term, efforts. My grace is sufficient for you. Just rest in the reality that God's grace is enough. There's nothing else you need to do, no one else you need to be, nowhere else you need to be, right here and right now. God's grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. Let go of all efforts to somehow earn, to somehow strive 
in exhaustion to be someone else, to do something else, to get rid of unpleasant inner experiences and instead just rest in the reality that God's grace is sufficient and right now he's offering you his sanctifying grace to work in and through you to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Third, pray to God, asking him to fill you with his grace, which is actually already there. Ask God to help you to recognize the grace that he's already given you, including his loving kindness, mercy, forgiveness, and ultimately presence. Pray to God that you will remember moment by moment that he has outstretched arms and is celebrating with you every time you return. Like the celebratory father in the story of the lost son. And God is chasing you, pursuing you, like the story of the lost sheep or the lost coin. Because of how valuable you are, he will leave the 99 and go to find you each and every moment. Ask God to help you to remember this reality that's already there. As you pray to God, remember, trust that he is responsive to you right now. He's already dwelling within and his fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are there. Fourth, contemplate in simplicity in loving simplicity, the grace of God by slowly, softly, and interiorly saying the word grace. Let all the other words drop off and in simplicity just say the word grace. Really to symbolically capture your willingness to passively accept God's grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it. And so this one syllable word so powerful in the Christian life is really a symbol of your ability to recognize what's already there, grace. God's unconditional acceptance is available right here and right now, and we're just accepting the reality of it. Grace. God is dwelling within, offering you undeserved love and merit and favor like the father in the story of the lost son. God's arms are outstretched as he celebrates you, even in your most sinful state and with your most sinful behaviors and ways. God loves you, including right here and right now, and there is nothing you can do to add or take away his grace and love extended to you. Grace. Regardless of your past, your present, the future, 
your inner world, your outer world, your relationships, you can rest in this reality that God is unconditionally accepting you right here and right now and sanctifying you right here and right now, and there's nothing you can do to earn that. And because of this, you can extend God's grace freely given to you, to yourself and others, and have more compassion and mercy and forgiveness toward yourself and others because of what God has done for you. And whenever, whenever another thought or feeling, memory or image comes up, just use that word grace as a way to gently Notice and then pivot. Notice the negative thought. Notice the overwhelming emotion. Acknowledge it and gently return to the word grace and rest in this reality that God is offering his loving, unconditional, forgiving acceptance right here and right now. trusting that God's grace is sufficient in this very moment. And as this time comes to a close, thank God for his grace, including his justifying, sanctifying, and eventually glorifying grace. Ask that he would help you to be a dwelling place or to recognize, to remember, to Acknowledge that he's already a dwelling place for his perfect grace and love, which extends to you right here and now in an undeserved, unconditional, accepting manner. Ask that he helps you to extend this grace to yourself, then others, on the roads of life, one step, one moment at a time. So to conclude this episode, grace is an unconditional, loving acceptance displayed in the context of a relationship between a giver who does not need to give and a receiver who does not deserve to receive and who has not earned the benevolent favor, gift, status, or merit. With God's grace, there's nothing we can do to earn it, but we can practice an awareness of it, then extend it to ourselves and others so we're more like Christ in all we do. Lexio Divina can be a way to do so, practicing divine reading by reading, meditating, praying, and contemplating God's Word, the Bible, including His proclamation that grace is sufficient and this can be applied to all of life, including our inner and outer world, our relationships, the different domains of life, such as work life and family life and church life and community life. We can operate out of the reality of grace. Rather than futilely striving to earn our status before him and others, we can rest, allowing God to work in and through us as we display his fruit, operating out of God-given love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you like this episode, please share it with others. Consider giving me a good rating on the various podcast platforms and join me again for another episode of The Christian Psychologist. Thank you.